Take out your Bibles, if you would, and open up to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, and we are uh, really only going to cover three verses. And it's on this topic today of us having our uh, new elder. And uh, so I've entitled it, Welcoming a New Elder. I was going to call it, uh, What Are We to Do with a New Elder? Or, What Are We to Do to a New Elder? I'm not sure hazing is legitimate for an elder board, but but it's possible, all right? And uh, so we want to welcome our new elder. We are uh, excited about what God has done. And in our passage today, which is going to be very brief, um, 21 through 23, not saying the message is going to be brief. The passage is brief. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord, in whom they had believed. Let's pray. Father, we are excited to join together as a congregation today, to join together before you and come into your presence this way, corporately. We worship you this morning. We bow down to you and give you honor. You have created us. And even when we sinned in Adam, yet you have sustained us by your mercy. And more than that, you have sent your Son to redeem us. He who corrected what Adam got wrong, he who obeyed in our place and gave his life as payment for our sins, that we might have forgiveness, that we might have right standing before you, that we might have this freedom to come into your presence. We know that is not of us. We know that is of you. We worship you and we praise you this morning for that. We praise you also that you have given us the body of Christ around us, the local expression that we get to be together as redeemed people. We get to read your word together. We get to sing praises to you. We get to pray together in this fashion. We get to sit under the teaching of your word. These are great blessings that are ours in Christ and that you have given to the church. And today you have given us another elder here at Parkside. Showing your care for us. Your concern for us. Your shepherding of us. And so, Father, as we turn to this brief passage, we pray that you would be at work, even this morning, in our hearts about how we are to welcome a new elder, how we as a congregation are to think about uh, what it means that you've given us another elder, another one to serve, 
this body, to lead this body, to care for this flock. I pray that you would instruct us, and I pray that through this you would direct us to Christ. Christ whom we need even now. And we pray in his name. Amen. I said earlier, it's not very often that we install a new elder here at, uh, at PBF. We are an established church. We've been around for a long time, and uh, so we don't have a lot of turnover. We don't have a lot of new additions and, and things like that, and so it's kind of an unusual thing for us to do. In fact, uh, we've only had one new elder since I came here 11 years ago, and so this is not a common thing. And so it's a special blessing that, uh, that God has given us today. We don't really have a, a routine for it. We don't. It's not that, something that we've done so much that yeah, we you know kind of uh, go through that regularly or anything like that. Uh, but when we look at our passage today, we can see kind of some thoughts that uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, incorporates in this brief section about Paul and Barnabas and what their ministry was like in uh, in well all over the place, but here. In, uh, in Turkey and in these regions. And so we want to, uh, if you'll just uh, kind of think back to what happened, what has gone on, we are kind of concluding here in this section, we are concluding the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. <clears throat> so they've gone out to proclaim the gospel, and they've gone here and there, and, and we've read about that. Uh, you read about that in the book of Acts. And, and then as they uh, get into this section here, they travel further and deeper into the country. In this town and that town, they preach the gospel, and it seems like everywhere they go, after a while, they begin to encounter hostility, those who would do them harm. And it kind of culminates in, uh, in chapter 14 there when, uh, when Paul is stoned at Lystra. And um, that's pretty extreme. That's not just, hey, they said some bad things, or they you know, said nasty stuff about us on our Yelp account or whatever. Like, he's, he's stoned. That's intended to kill people. So they drag him out, stone him, leave him. And, uh, of course, uh, the, the saints gather around him and, and come up to him and whatnot. And, uh, but you see this recurring theme in their ministry that there's opposition. There's strong opposition that Paul and Barnabas, everywhere they go, they might initially receive a pretty good welcome because, you know, they've, they've got this new message and, and they're, they're good Bible teachers and, and so they can, they can expound the scriptures and, and all that kind of stuff. But pretty soon there arises opposition. Pretty soon you see, uh, someone stand up and they end up getting run out of town or, or, uh, somebody starts whispering over here and there becomes a contingent of people who want them thrown out and then eventually you actually have Paul being stoned. And so, as they've gone from town to town in this fashion, continuing to proclaim the gospel, continuing to meet in the synagogues and share the gospel and, and preach and, and uh, plant churches and lead people to Christ and make disciples, etc., there comes a time when they turn around and, you know, I, I don't know about you and I, you know, I'm not really certain about me, actually, in this kind of a context, but if you had gone to a town and preached until they ran you out, and then you went to the next town and then you preached until they ran you out, I don't know if on the return journey you would hit all those same towns. I, you know, but they did. That's exactly what they did. And the reason they did wasn't just because they were gluttons for punishment. wasn't just because they were looking to suffer for the gospel. But it's because there were Christians there. 
And they wanted to go back through and they wanted to minister to those Christians. And so they went back, they reversed their thread and they went back and, uh, and, and went to those churches to strengthen those disciples there to minister to them. And so that's what we read in 21 or 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, that city being Derby, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So they backtracked all the way back out. Right. And so they returned to those places, not because they were gluttons for punishment, not because they wanted to, uh, you know, accomplish something else. But for these reasons, in verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Encouraging them in the faith. So here Paul and Barnabas were willing to enter a place of suffering. You know, still had the wanted posters up. You know, when they went back to that town because they had Christian friends there because they had disciples in that place because they had brothers and sisters in Christ who had to live in that environment where Paul's wanted poster was up and they wanted to strengthen and encourage those people. And so they went back through, they were ministering and and uh, they were encouraging them to continue in the faith. I know you saw me get beat up and run out of town. I know you saw me get stoned and thought I was dead. I know you saw these things. Keep trusting Christ. Keep trusting Christ. So they wanted to go back and they wanted to direct the attention of these disciples to Christ. Keep walking with him. Stay in his word. Uh, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And now there, there enters a, a sort of a new aspect to Paul's ministry that we don't really haven't read about much. But it, you can see that he's experiencing it in his own life. And that's when he says, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So he's kind of looking at his own ministry. And, you know, I imagine as he went back to Lystra and uh, people were, you know, a little nervous about Paul coming back to town because he had gotten stoned and run off that, uh, you know, the, the church was probably like, you know, you know, considering whether they wanted to partake of that, participate in that same suffering or not. And Paul comes into town and he says, keep following Christ. And by the way, suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. It's a normal part of the Christian life. That what Paul was going through may have been extreme in some ways. It may have been unusual in some ways, yet it was consistent that Christians will suffer for the gospel. It's a part of the Christian life that in some way suffering is going to come, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So that's their message. They want to go back, and they're even willing to go into those dark places, endure maybe, maybe more threats of being stoned, run out of town, You know, Paul already has a reputation. Barnabas already has a reputation in those places. But they're willing to endure that because they want to strengthen those disciples. They want to direct those disciples. Keep walking with Christ, even though you face tribulation in this life. That brings us to our main focus. Verse 23. So after that being their motivation, that being the general outline of what they were doing, what actually were they accomplishing? And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. So you see what they were doing as they were going. They they weren't just going back to these churches and saying, hey, I'm here to encourage you. Look, I've only got two weeks, so let's meet every night and every morning for two weeks, and then I'm out of here, and you're going to be left on your own. I know there are fierce wolves out there. I know there are people who, who would bring in difficulties, but uh, th- that's not what they did. They probably did meet for a couple of weeks, and they probably met as often as they could, and for as long as they could. But part of the process, part of 
the provision that uh, Paul and Barnabas made is when they came to those communities, they would appoint elders for them in every church. So Paul and Barnabas would come to town. They would recognize those who were likely candidates, would be good under-shepherds, good elders in this congregation, and appointed them to that role. So that Paul and Barnabas, I can I can imagine it's not in the text. I'm just imagining their last night before you know they were going to pack up early and leave in the morning. Them meeting with these elders and encouraging them and strengthening them and saying, "Look, you are the under shepherds God has given over this community. You saw how we got beat up. You saw how we were maligned. You need to protect this congregation in the midst of these difficulties, in the midst of these dangers." And so Paul and Barnabas appointed elders. In every church, I'll notice it's plural. That doesn't mean only two, nor does it mean one, right? So uh, uh, we draw from this and from other places, but we draw from this that there needs to be a plurality of elders, that that uh, there needs to be a group of men meeting these qualifications that we talked about last week and, and, and looked at there, that uh, there needs to be a group of men who will be under shepherds together to protect this church, to provide for this church, to feed this church. And so you have Paul and Barnabas appointing those. And so uh, what are we to do in welcoming an elder? Well, first of all, we're to appoint him, which is what we just did today. That's what we've just done today, right? And this isn't just here. It's not as if, you know, we, we talk in our hermeneutics class about not building a doctrine off of a single passage or a single verse, you see it consistently in other places as well. Remember, when Paul uh, left Titus on Crete, the island of Crete, what was his purpose? That you might put things in order, those things that remain, and that you might appoint elders in every town. Again, you have the plurality. Each town is to have elders to govern what's going on there, to protect that church, to oversee that flock, to care for them. And so you see that appointing is, uh, is something that happens there. Well, that kind of raises the question, appointed to do what? Um, Hebrews 13 tells us one aspect of what elders are to do. They are to joyfully keep watch over our souls. Joyfully keep watch over our souls. I don't know about you, but I remember having a conversation with someone whose um, attitude, I think, is a little bit more uh, American than biblical. I was talking with this man about his submission to the local church because he had no submission to the local church. He attended when he wanted to, and he um, he saw that he was sort of a beneficiary to the church or whatever. And I was talking about their responsibility to keep watch over his soul. And he was like, I'll watch over my own soul, thank you. I don't need someone else to watch over my soul. right?" And I think we sometimes have that attitude. And of course, we keep watch over our souls. We do examine our own hearts. We do bring ourselves before God. We do worship Christ. We do focus our hearts that direction. We confess sin. We keep short accounts with God and with other Christians. Of course we do all of those things. And we still need someone to keep watch over our souls. And so they appointed elders. Hebrews 13 says that that, uh, we are to submit ourselves to those elders whose job it is, whose task it is to joyfully keep watch over our souls. First uh, Peter puts it another way. First Peter chapter 5, shepherd the flock of God where you've been placed. Shepherd, right? The language in Hebrews 13 was keep watch over the soul. Uh, First Peter 5, uh, shepherd the flock of God, right? Which makes sense. We are 
Elders are considered under-shepherds. We are shepherds of the flock. He goes on in 1 Peter 5, eagerly and willingly exercising oversight, not domineering over the flock, but being examples to the flock. That's what elders are to do. There's a, there's a care, there's, a, there's an oversight, uh, there's a shepherding that goes on with a particular attitude, with a particular relationship, not in a domineering relationship, but in, in being examples to the flock. And so that's one of the aspects that they are to do. Uh, we, we saw last week by looking at First Timothy chapter 3, the requirement there that an elder uh, manage his household well, because if he doesn't manage his household well, how can he manage the church of God? So there's a management aspect that goes on in uh, being elders. It's a, it's, a, it's a nurturing, it's an oversight, it's a provision, it's giving direction, it's all of those sorts of things like a father does in a household. So that's what an elder is appointed to do. And how is an elder supposed to accomplish that task? How does he do it? Uh, you remember Acts chapter 6, you can flip back there, Acts chapter 6 and verse 4. You have this section here of the appointing of Stephen and the others and uh, chosen to serve in that, in that capacity that they were. But uh, we see in verse 4, the apostles saying, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's the primary way an elder uh, administers these tasks he's been given. That's the primary way he manages the household of God, is by the ministry of prayer and the word. So an elder is to be a, a praying person. And I can tell you as an elder that uh, we, we often painfully feel our, our lack in this regard, that we feel a need to pray more. And so we do. And, and, but it's something that, that uh, recurs, that we need to uh, be in prayer for the congregation. Another way he can accomplish these tasks, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, he can rule well by working hard at preaching and teaching. This is something that's different. We've talked about this uh, last week, that one of the aspects, the responsibilities uh, that, that we have is to care for the flock. And how do we do that? Primarily by preaching and teaching, the ministry of the word and prayer. Right? So we pray for the congregation. We pray by name. We pray for situations. We pray for the whole church. We pray for individuals and families going through difficult things. And we preach and teach the word of God. That is how an elder accomplishes this task. And so we're bringing the Word of God, giving instruction about, uh, about what we ought to believe, how we ought to understand our times, our circumstances, our difficulties that we face. It's by the teaching of God's Word. We looked at Titus chapter 1 last week. It points out that an elder is to be one who holds firm the trustworthy Word, ready to give instruction and rebuke where needed. So there's a, there's a responsibility to be well-grounded personally in the faith, and be able to give instruction where it's needed, give rebuke where it's needed, based upon what God's Word says. And so there's a huge emphasis for the elders to be teaching. It's a teaching role. It's a, in, an instruction role. And the protection that we provide, though you know we do have a building that protects us from the elements, we do have a security team that thinks about security things that the rest of us don't normally think about. You know, what if, what if this were to happen, if there was a fire, or if there was a something? We've got people who think about that. So we do provide protection. But the primary means of protection, the primary means of threat against us is about what we believe. And so our primary means of protection is instructing accurately and biblically in what we ought to believe. 
and how to recognize error. So there's a large emphasis on teaching, on preaching. And I love what Paul says in Acts chapter 20 and uh, verse 28 through 38. We're not going to look at that in, in detail. We've done so before, but, but here is Paul speaking with the elders from Ephesus and he uh, points out kind of the heart of what they are to do. They are to pay careful attention to, to themselves and to the flock, watching their lives, watching their doctrine of themselves, their own heart before God, their own walk with God, their own faith, the things that they believe, watching their own heart, their own life, their own doctrine, and that of the congregation. And so that's what elders are to do, pay careful attention to himself, to the flock. In this way, they can care for the church of God, always being alert and admonishing where needed. So that's, in summary, what uh, what we're appointing an elder for. And so uh, Stephen and I have had many, many talks about an elder's responsibility in these regards and uh, and how that is his desire and, and that is um, that is something he seeks to do and feels a personal burden to do. And so we have appointed him this morning uh, as our new elder. And he goes on in uh, verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them. With prayer and fasting. So secondly, what can we do for to welcome a new elder? We can pray and fast for him. Okay? I can tell you personally, there are not many more encouraging things that you can do for an elder than pray for him and then tell him that you pray for him. What an encouragement. Because you know, we, we find ourselves often dealing with uh, areas of difficulty. I mean, the, the process, the, the, the life of protecting others means that you put yourself in harm's way in certain ways. Of course, we don't, you know, people don't shoot at us and we're not protecting you in the way that, that uh, you know, the police or military or something like that does. The protection that, that we provide in, the, in the, the sphere in which is our conflict is a spiritual sphere. It has to do with, the, with ideas, with teachings, with, with the doctrines of demons sometimes that we must face, that we must address. And so we end up finding ourselves in harm's way in that regard. So pray for us. Pray for us, and particularly pray for Stephen and uh, Debbie as they are stepping into this. They need the prayer, and they would greatly appreciate your prayer. And they would be excited if today you would uh, even commit to pray for them as a new elder family. That would be something that would encourage them going into this process. It encourages all of us elders when we know that you are praying for us. So we thank you for that. But it's interesting. It's not just, you know, the, the Parkside elders or, or whatever, even Paul. In 1 Thessalonians 5.25, he says, Brothers, pray for us. He's requesting it. He recognizes that need. The same thing in Hebrews 13, verse 18. Pray for us. Romans 15 and verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. I'm praying, please pray with me, even for my own ministry, for my own life, for my own family. Let's pray together. And so uh, that's an appeal that, that Paul makes there at the end of uh, Romans. But what, to what end should you pray? We can make a couple of suggestions from Scripture. First of all, pray for an effective and faithful ministry. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Finally, brothers, pray for us. Pray what, Paul? I'm happy to pray for you. I pray for you already. How would you like me to pray for you? He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Pray for us to that end, that the ministry would be fruitful and effective, that God's word that we proclaim would be proclaimed well and would have its effect, would bring change in lives and families. Likewise, Colossians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. My own heart is that you would pray for me as I teach, as I preach, as I lead in different ways, that, that God would help me to speak boldly and clearly, which is how I ought to speak. And I know Stephen's heart is exactly the same, and the rest of the elders, it's the same. We would covet your prayers for us in that regard. We want to communicate God's word in power, in truth, and in clarity. And then pray that he would bring about great results from that. And so as you're praying for, for Stephen, pray that for him. Likewise, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20, make supplications for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Pray that God would help me to speak clearly his word to other people. And so one of our responsibilities, one, thing we, one of the things we can do as members of the congregation is be in prayer for our elders, and particularly this morning we think about Stephen in this regard, that his teaching of Scripture would be clear, true, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that God would use it greatly. So that's the, maybe the first thing, is about clarity, fruitful in, fruitfulness in ministry. And secondly, pray for deliverance in time of trial or difficulty. We already read where Paul mentioned once that, that pray that I might be delivered from this difficulty that I find myself in. He says in, in uh, Philippians 1.19, For I know that through your prayers... And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Pray for me in this situation that I might be delivered, that God would be at work. Or in Philemon 22, the same time, prepare a guest room for me, Paul says to Philemon, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. So your, your prayer for us, your prayer for elders, your prayer for Stephen is something God uses to prepare the way and smooth the road for the elder and for Stephen and, and deliver us out of difficulties, even when you don't know specifics, even when you're just praying for us. So there's a point of application here for us. Let's, let's continue to pray for Stephen. Fast for him. Take, take, a, take a time every week or, or however that works for you. Maybe miss uh, three meals or one meal or... But take time and, and where you would normally be feeding your own body, take that time to recognize Stephen needs upholding. The elders need upholding more than I need food right now. So I'm going to commit that time to that. And so even pray and fast for the elders, but specifically for Stephen and Debbie, as Stephen has taken on this additional responsibility. So that's what we see them doing. We see them appointing 
elders in every church with prayer and fasting, what did they do? They committed them to the Lord. They committed them to the Lord. So what else do we do with a new elder? We commit him to the Lord. And there's, a, there's something that seems to be going on here. Paul has just said, remember in the previous uh, verse, he had just said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's the message that he was giving at the very time he was appointing elders in these various towns. Oh, by the way, you're signing up to be an elder? Here's what it involves, and that includes tribulation. There seems to be something in this word, commit him to the Lord. That word commit means like commit for safekeeping. Commit for protection. So, commit him to the Lord's protection in these difficulties, even in these uh, tribulations. Well, what kind of difficulties might there be? Well, I'm sure you can imagine what some of them might be, and some of you have been elders or are elders, and, and you can say, well, I know what they are, they're this, this, and this. <laughs> what are the difficulties? What might be? Well, first of all, there are pitfalls. There are pitfalls that uh, that elders face. Remember we talked about the qualifications for elders last week, and we looked through and, and went through that list, and we didn't dig into detail, and, and, and we could have, and you could spend a long time looking at the details involved there. But the very fact that there are qualifications given seems to indicate to me that there will come attacks in those areas. There are pitfalls in ministry and the responsibility of being elders that make it so these qualifications are necessary. If, if I go and get a job somewhere and one of the qualifications is you have to be able to swim, I'm guessing there's water involved, okay? They didn't ask me that when I got this job, right? When I came here to Parkside, hey, can you swim, by the way? No, it's, it's when someone is going to be in a, in a case where, you know, your ship might go down, your, your helicopter might go down. You might find yourself in water and need to be able to swim, so can you swim? There are qualifications that are different than that, of course, but there are qualifications that indicate to us there are certain pitfalls, certain circumstances that will, that will cause temptation or difficulty in that area. And so there are certain pitfalls. There are also certain enemies. There are certain enemies that can crop up. I don't mean enemy like people trying to kill us or, or even necessarily people hating us, but people directly fighting against and working against the church perhaps or, or maybe that elder individually or maybe the elder board altogether or maybe against all of Christianity. There are different kinds of enemies, but the fact that there are protections tells us that there will be something from which we need to be protected. So, for example, 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's a certain aspect of protection there. Why is that? Is it because when you become an elder, you suddenly have a different class and, and oh, you can't say anything bad about me? Of course not. What, what he's identifying, what he's recognizing there is that when you take on a position of leadership, you, you get a target on your back. And when someone doesn't like something that you did or something that you said or something you stand for or against or whatever, there can, there can come attacks, right? And, and, and sometimes uh, those attacks can actually be in the form of accusations of sin or something like that. Well, Paul isn't saying, hey, don't, don't even bother uh, bringing accusations of sin against an elder. They couldn't do that. That's not what he says. He says, you need to have a structure in place to make sure this is not just somebody angry about you, angry at this elder or the situation that's going on and they think by attacking, by going after this elder in some way, 
they can uh, they can get that taken care of. He says, no, if you're going to bring a charge, that's fine. There need to be two or three witnesses. It has to be an actual concerted effort, not just an email lobbed in saying, yeah, did you know so-and-so did this or whatever, right? There are protections because there are certain kinds of enemies. There are certain attacks that might come. And then thirdly, first there were pitfalls, and secondly, there are enemies, and thirdly, there are threats, external dangers. They are very real, right? And thus, we see what Paul said here in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There are tribulations involved. When Paul was speaking to the elders uh, from Ephesus, what did he say to them? Fierce wolves will come and, and, and attack you, some of them even from your own midst. The idea of fierce wolves tells you there's danger. There's actual danger. There, there, there are threats to the faith, threats to the family perhaps, threats that need to be taken seriously. And so, as a church and, and individually, let's commit to pray uh, for Stephen. Let's commit him to the Lord, praying that he would be set apart for service to God as a useful instrument and that the Lord would protect him, would protect his family, even as he seeks to serve in our body. Let's commit him to the Lord. Let's do so in prayer. And let's remember to continue in prayer in those ways. And let's, let's do that corporately and let's do that individually as well. We want to commit Stephen to the Lord and to the Lord's protection. Fourthly, as we celebrate our common faith, when they had appointed elders for them in every church and with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The Lord in whom they had believed. This doesn't only mean that you know Paul and Barnabas were Christians because they had believed in the Lord, nor does it only mean that the, the person, uh, the elder elders that they appointed also believed in the Lord, though of course that would be a requirement. There seems to be something else going on. I was just talking with Sue very briefly this morning about our time in Africa and our time in India. And one of the things that I have found as I've traveled and met with Christians around the world, that though they often look very different from me and often we can't even understand each other's speech, yet there is a, there is a familiarity. There is a fellowship that we have with Christians around the world. Uh, that you could go, you know, you could travel into the whole other world of, you know, California and you... You, you will find commonality. Christians have fellowship with one another. And uh, that is kind of what is going on here. Like, there, there, there always seems to be a sense of unity and a fellowship that Christians have with one another, even though backgrounds are so different. As I was standing in Afra, Africa, Andy and I were in Rwanda, and um, I'm not a short person, but uh, we, were, we were talking with a couple of men there, and Andy and I were like, we felt like you know the the JV you know basketball team or something compared to, but but they're and, and they and they come from a place of of such particularly in Rwanda with the things that they've experienced and the life that they've grown up with and stuff like that and yet wasn't there a great familiarity a great fellowship a great uh, enjoyment of of being in one another's presence because we have believed in the Lord that they in their context have recognized their need, they have come to know Christ, they've seen Him as faithful, they continue to, to look for Him, to look to Him, and the same with us. There's great, great encouragement and familiarity in that. The installation of a new elder is 
a celebration of God's special work in the life of a man, not, not just around the world in Rwanda. He has worked over there, and he's worked in my heart. And the installation of a new elder is evidence that God is at work in the heart of another person, at work in the heart of another family, to, to grow a man, to mature a family in, in this way. We are not a, a business looking to hire a CEO. That's, that's not the discussion of what an elder uh, is or ought to be. We are not the military who promotes someone up the ranks. You know, he served as a Sunday school teacher for a while, so we made him a deacon. He served as a deacon for a while, so we made him an elder. That's not, that's not the way that works. We don't just promote people up the chain or whatever. A church should never put someone into a leadership position simply because of any natural talents or gifting or position in society. You know, if a billionaire moved to town and he was a respectable Christian guy, that doesn't mean we make him an elder just because he's sharp in some ways or whatever. Their considerations are different. In the church, when a man is appointed to leadership as an elder, it involves the recognition that God has done gracious work in this man's life. God has done gracious work in his family's life. This is a recognition that God has qualified this man according to God's standards. And so we recognize that. We benefit from that. It's only by God's saving and sanctifying work that a man could be qualified for this office. It's not just more study makes a person qualified. It's not just that more time makes a person qualified or a, a, a breadth of experiences or, or something like that. It is God's gracious work in his life. When God does that in a man's life, it's not just a gracious gift to that man. It's not just a gracious gift to that family, though it's, of course, a blessing to his family when he's that kind of man. But it's a gracious gift to the whole congregation. This is God's blessing upon us. And so let's celebrate what God has done for us in Christ by means of his spirit, even as he's exemplified in raising up Stephen as a new elder. This is God's work. This is God's uh, blessing in our lives. The Father chose to redeem sinners rather than simply punish them for their rebellion as they deserve. That's you and me. We deserve punishment for that rebellion. But, but God chose to do something different. And the Son came as one of us, and He accomplished that redemption by His own righteous life and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. Christ accomplished it. And then the Spirit applies that redemptive work to the previously lost sinner. That God is at work saving sinners, redeeming sinners. That's the faith that we have in common. And today we've witnessed another aspect of this blessing as the triune God has placed us in a family of believers together among others who have been redeemed in Christ, who have peace with God because of what Jesus has accomplished, among other people in whom the Spirit of God dwells and is at work. God has blessed us in that way and he's given us his word, the Bible, and today he's given us another man who's Life has been changed by the gospel and called to minister that word to us. That's God's gracious blessing on us here at Parkside. God has raised up another under-shepherd with a burden to feed and to tend the flock here at Parkside. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. That's protection for you and for me. That's blessing for you and for me. That's God's provision. That's God's work for us. 
All of this God has done because of His great love for us and for His own glory. What a blessing for us. And so today we've gotten to install a new elder here at Parkside. We recognize before God and one another that God has shown His love for this body by once again raising up a man to keep watch over our souls in prayer and in the ministry of the Word. Let's praise God together for what He has done and show our commitment and our love and our support for Stephen and his family even after the service. He's requested not a too many um, holy kisses, though, but we'll, we'll work on his sanctification in that regard. But you can give him the right hand of fellowship. Give him a hug, maybe. And together, let's, let's commit to pray for Stephen and for his family as he ministers to us as he ministers to our body as the newest elder at Parkside. This is, this is another indication, a visible, bearded indication of God's blessing to us in Christ. That he has brought us here in Christ. That he's given us peace with God as a, uh, in, individually and brought us together. And now he's given us another minister over us. He's given us another elder to care for our souls here at Parkside. I'm encouraged And I'm blessed by that. And uh, my prayer is that you will be also. And my prayer is that you will, uh, even after the the close of the service here, um, Stephen and or Debbie, they've got kids, so you never know who's running where, but we'll be up front. So come and and show them your love and and, and, uh, your commitment to lift them up and your gratitude to God that he has blessed us in redeeming Stephen, in working in his life, in, in growing him, in his own faith, in his own family, and in giving him the burden and the qualification to serve as an elder here. Praise God for that. So it's, it's, my, uh, it's my desire that, that uh, Steve would get a lot of hugs and, and few kisses. <laughs> Though somebody did tell me they, they really, you know, I shouldn't challenge them not to kiss someone because that meant they would. So we'll see. You'll have to let me know, Stephen. Let's pray. Father, we are um, humbled, we are humbled to hear of your work. We reflect on your work in our lives, your work in the past here at Parkside, the things that, that we've seen go on. We've, uh, we're humbled by the fact that you would care for us, that we, uh, fallen, sinful creatures, rebellious against you, yet have been redeemed by Christ. We are humbled and we rejoice and praise you for that redemption and the fact that you have called us to be together as a body, as a flock, and you've given us today another shepherd to care for us. I pray that you would empower him as he seeks to do so. Direct his heart and his attention to you and to the care for your people. I pray that you would encourage him, that you would bless him. I pray that that you would protect him and his family that you would be at work in that family and using Stephen as a minister to us, to my own soul, keeping watch over my soul and our souls. He, he's, not, he's not a giant. He's not someone who can do this himself. He would, he would uh, fail miserably if he were to do that. So I pray that you would be at work using him as your instrument to accomplish your purposes in this body. Father, I pray for the rest of us that we would rejoice in your expression of love for us, your care for us, that you are moving, you have moved in his family and in his heart, and you are moving here in this body 
We pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. There will be a family up here to pray with you also, if, if you would like to pray with them. And, uh, but you come, come and give uh, the Duartes a hug. I want to leave with these words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. God bless you all. God bless you, Stephen and Debbie. You're dismissed.